Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily. And I'm your other host, Margot. Welcome back. Spooky season. Ghost. Very close to Halloween, and that means that we've got a couple of special Halloween episodes for you all. We're really excited to talk about tonight's topic, or today's topic. It's tonight for us right now, which makes it even spookier. (laughs) Um, And that is all the witch centric movies that came our way in the late 90s and early 2000s. And we're talking about, of course, the craft, practical magic. And the Disney Channel, of course, had a big part in this with. Halloween Town and Twitches. And we are so excited to talk about these. I think a lot of these were big staples in our sleepover days. They certainly were for me, both the Disney Channel movies and, uh, of course, Practical Magic and The Craft. I don't know about you. Definitely The Craft, definitely Practical Magic. Where else do you think you do the flat as stiff as a board, light as a feather? Light as a feather, yep. yep. Shtick. You need other people. Also, I was an only child, so really I couldn't do it by myself anyway. So it takes a village. It certainly Or a does. coven. It certainly does. And of course, we're going to kind of just quick brief history. Obviously, in the 60s, there was the show Bewitched. And then in the early 90s, we saw Hocus Pocus, shout out. Which sadly falls outside of our time range because it's 93, even though it truly does feel fresh to this day. And they have, I mean, there are a million think pieces out on Hocus Pocus and so many revisions and interviews with the cast. And Kenny Ortega still directs a bunch of movies, especially for Disney. High school musical movies. And it's a very popular Halloween costume. I've never done it myself, but it's definitely on a list of Halloween costume group costumes to do. Right along there with Spice Girls, which also doesn't seem to be happening this year, which, you know, I don't want to talk about it. I will not be answering questions at this time, (laughs) but I just need privacy to recoup and look at my wardrobe to see what I can scramble together. Yeah, for me, unfortunately, I got into my hairdresser's chair and was like, make my hair pink so my 
Elizabeth Holmes costume we talked about many episodes oh. ago will be no more. But I, I oh, think... I need to borrow that tambourine for oh, my yes, work. Yes, yes. Okay. Stevie Nicks yes. costume. I will bring that before I, will... I forget. Yes, I will bring that to you. I was Stevie Nicks a few years ago, and Margot will be Stevie Nicks this year, so I am well, going to borrow my tambourine. It's kind of funny because my work station, well, actually, my job takes Halloween pretty seriously, but our workstation theme is like fortune tellers and witches, and I'm like Ooh. perfect for today as well so that when i'm looking up weird practical magic facts at work they don't really suspect much i just say it's inspiration for halloween exactly it's the perfect cover it's absolutely perfect for me i certainly watch these movies a lot um of course as we've talked about in previous episodes i was really into sabrina so that was a big show on in the late 90s and of course charm came later on around like 98 99 on the wb so there were a lot of shows devoted to witchcraft, a lot of movies. And Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Buffy, I just kind of thought, oh, yeah, I guess, like, Willow is a witch. and like She becomes a witch, but even still, like, Halloween Town sort cult, of yeah. talks about how, you know, there are also vampires. And there are lots of other witch-based or lore-based movies where they sort of talk about how, they don't sort of, they talk about how it's all sort of of a piece, this, like, mystical realm. You For just sure. have different types of powers and you sort of, file into different groups like a warlock i mean they kind of sort of did it in apocalypse and horror story they obviously did it better as coven yeah but it's interesting that that's part of the greater mythology i think no totally for in terms of where we're kind of starting with this whole witchcraft series uh we'll be talking about the craft or at least i'll be talking about the craft it is the first of these movies that came out, and it came out in 1996, and it is directed by Andrew Fleming, who's most known for directing and writing Threesome, aka the movie Haley Bieber's dad likes to pretend he never acted in because he's <laughs> now an evangelical Christian. Because It's so, a scene it's so interesting how a lot of evangelical Christians do that. Yeah, Stephen Baldwin is definitely up there in terms of, of people who made movies that they now regret because of their religious beliefs and political beliefs. He also directed Dick, which I continue to stand. We uh, talked about that I'm, before. Yeah, we have talked about making that its own oh, episode sure. as well. And under another underappreciated cult classic. Yeah, and, and what I love about it, of course, because it was filmed mostly in DC and I can tell you where all the various things are, like which never happens for me, but happens for you all the time because Burbank is like... <laughs> <laughs> um, it's an unfair advantage, and I didn't ask for this privilege. Yes. But I do respect that we could go to D.C. and be like, this is where they shot Dick, and I'd be very interested in that. You'd be like, oh, really? <laughs> and then other people would be really alarmed about what it is that we're talking about. <laughs> exactly. Um, he also directed Nancy Drew with Emma Roberts, which is a good mm. Ryan Murphy connection. But I also really like that Nancy Drew Me movie. Me too. It's cute. I really it like is really it. cute. It's a great plane watch. It is. You're <laughs> absolutely right. Um, and Hamlet 2, which had Steve Coogan in it. I also I love, love that, that movie. movie. Yeah, me too. Me too. I really wow. enjoyed it. And Elizabeth Shue is in it. And um, I'm blinking right now, but there are there There's a ton. Of, isn't Peter Dinklage in that? Yes. And I believe Amy Poehler is in it as it's well. It's so fucking funny. It's so funny. Oh, my God. I uh, love that movie. It's very true to being a theater kid For in sure. so many ways. Anyway, For it's great. Sure. That along with it's Saved and obviously Election, those are like great yeah. high school-based yeah. movies. They felt very right because I think there was a bit of that Tracy Flick character for Election that I, I related to and Saved going to a Catholic school. Not quite evangelical Christian, but definitely some people who are quite self-righteous. I am full of Christ love. I am filled with Christ love. <laughs> 
He also directed episodes of the Michael J. Fox Show, Difficult People, <gasps> Red Oaks, Lady Dynamite, Alrighty Younger, P. and Insatiable. Yikes. Oh, well, the, you the know what? That's of fine. This list is pretty tight. Younger, definitely Difficult People. For sure. All great stuff. The concept and the script started out as a collaboration between Peter Filardi, who's best known for writing the movie Flatliners, and the miniseries Salem Slot, starring Rob Lowe, and that's pretty much Oh, all, yeah. okay. And producer Douglas Wick, who's best known for producing Gladiator, Stuart Little, Girl Interrupted, Memoirs of a Geisha, The Great Gatsby, and the Divergent movies. I'm just going to keep throwing money at this shit until I win an Oscar, it is what that just read like much. to me. Pretty much. <laughs> and Andrew Fleming ended up providing rewrites when he signed on as director. So the plot goes as follows, and I tried to keep this as short as possible, but it's... It is a touch convoluted. I've So I saw yeah. the Peaches Christ version of the craft <laughs> with um I, it was alaska and it was someone else that alaska i'm totally blinking yeah that i'm totally blinking on anyway it was a couple of years ago but i feel like that was the most condensed way to have ever told the craft and it was very quick i mean they told it in like 30 45 minutes and the movie is much longer yes I'll go in. I know. I, I wasn't trying to give you false expectations, but they do a really funny chant where they start yelling at Peaches Christ, you've never been on Drag Race. You've never been on Drag Race. And that's one of my favorite memories of seeing Aww. that. Anyway, I will co- let you continue on with the plot. Thank you. Robin Tunney plays Sarah, a teenage girl who recently moved from San Francisco to L.A. with her dad and stepmom after having attempted ending her life. Sarah's mom actually died while giving birth to her, so that is why her dad has remarried. And at her new school, St. Benedict's, which is a Catholic school, she be friends three other girls who are shunned by their peers for various reasons and are rumored to be witches they meet because bonnie sees sarah rotate a pencil during a class with telekinesis powers and they strike up a conversation <laughs> um they're known as the weirdos at their school their ringleader nancy is played by Faruja balk who lives with her family in a trailer park and her stepdad is really abusive and creepy Rochelle, played by Rachel True, is an African-American girl in the school, but is the only kind of person of color there, and is frequently bullied by her white classmates who make really racist comments, particularly a blonde bitchy girl named Laura Lizzie, who is played by Christine Taylor. Bonnie, who's played by Nev... Yeah, yeah, I was... I'd forgotten about that Completely forgot she was... I was like, why did... For a long time, I was like, why do I have an irrational hate of Christine Christine Taylor? Taylor, And now I remember, (laughs) 10 years after I had that thought. She was so god-awful. She was a cunt. And she even talks about it. So in the oral history that I was reading um, from Entertainment Weekly, she was like, every time she had to film a scene where she said something like really horribly racist, she would immediately apologize to Rachel True after they yelled cut because she was just like so embarrassed. Donating to all sorts of like college funds. (laughs) I would hope. (laughs) And the final girl of those friends is Bonnie, who's played by Nev Campbell, who has burned scars all over her body from a car accident. And as a result... She wears a big windbreaker and long sleeves to cover them up and is dressed, like, pretty modestly. The three girls worship... <laughs> Although everybody dresses like that now. Sorry. That's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Looking eagerly at Pretty sure I saw some... Well, actually, I know I saw somebody on BART, like, a week ago. They were getting off the train. Complete goth girl, but she dressed exactly like Bonnie, and she had yes. a little rollaway suitcase that was in the shape of a coffin. I was like, well, we have no choice but to stand. Of course. I, as I said earlier on Twitter a couple weeks ago, when it comes to the Visco girls... They basically look like you attended summer camp in the 1990s, and Hallie Parker from The Parent Trap is the OG Visco girl. Don't at me. <laughs> I do think you're right, though. Oh, for sure. I mean, with the friendship bracelets and the scrunchies. I was about to say the scrunchies. Oh, my God. The three girls worship a powerful deity known as Manon, and after seeing... <laughs> I know. 
Nice pronunciation on that, too. I tried. I mean, they do say it like that. I was like, I hope I don't sound like snobby French girl, but that's how they pronounce it. After seeing Sarah display these powers, they believe that she is the missing link that will complete their coven. This is further confirmed when a vagrant harasses Sarah with a snake when they're all hanging out together and walking around. (laughs) And then he gets hit by a car because all four of them wish for it to happen. Oh, yes. so many times in middle school, me and my friends would close our eyes and wish for something terrible to happen to a terrible person, and yeah. it never came. And it never came true. It's nice to think about, though. Yeah, I think the high school reunion is really where you, you hopefully get some of that closure of revenge fantasies. Not everyone, unfortunately, but a couple. For a Halloween show, somebody wrote a sketch about Carrie going to her high school reunion and everybody being terrified of her and trying to be nice to her, but, like, fake. Like, ha, 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 you're so happy. you always been this funny. Oh, my God, you're She does eventually kill everybody in the end, but she feels bad about it this time. It would be a reunion for one. (laughs) (laughs) That's the sequel. Reunion for one. Carrie too. Reunion. That also sounds like a Carly Rae Jepsen song. It really does. (laughs) Meanwhile. Sarah falls for Chris Hooker, the popular guy in school who's played by Skeet Ulrich, which oh, yeah. for in 1996, he more bad boy asshole. Skeet Ulrich. He played asshole for a full year and then some. Well, look at that face. I know. After they go on a date, he lies to everyone and says that they slept together. And when she tries to confront him about it, he makes it look like she's been obsessing over him in front of his friends. Like, stop talking to me. The girls visit a store that specializes in the occult where they learn more about magic The owner notes that Sarah may actually be a witch and that it might be something that was in her family. And so she's kind of above the rest of them in some way. Like, it just kind of shows. The four girls get together and decide to each cast a spell. Sarah casts a love spell on Chris. Rochelle casts a revenge spell on Laura. Bonnie casts a beauty spell. And Nancy casts a spell for power. The spells work, and Sarah can control Chris with this love spell, and he's basically infatuated with her. Rochelle's bully Laura begins to lose her hair. And Bonnie's scars go away, and Nancy becomes even more powerful. She is, in fact, powerful enough to cause her stepfather to die of a heart attack, and the insurance policy allows her and her mom to leave the trailer park. Nancy decides to take it up a notch by calling on Manon and casting a spell known as the Invocation of the Spirit. This causes her to be struck by lightning, and her powers then are even greater than the rest of the girls, as is evidenced by her being able to walk on water on the beach and is beginning of the with great power comes great responsibility downfall that was inevitable in this movie. Bonnie becomes narcissistic about her newfound beauty, which, okay, sis, you were still Nev Campbell, even with the scars, so even if you had stuff on your arms or your back, like, you were still hot to begin with. Rochelle sees that Laura has been emotionally scarred by losing her hair and is found frequently crying in the bathroom. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. I'd be petty like that. Um, I would be too. But, like, she was an asshole. Uh, Chris is so infatuated with Sarah that because of his this love spell, he takes her out on a date and attempts to rape her. When Sarah is able to escape him, she goes and tells Nancy, and Nancy in turn runs to a party to plot revenge on him. Nancy then uses a spell to make herself look like Sarah and seduces Chris at the party. When Sarah finds them and Chris sees that he's been tricked, he's freaked out, and when Sarah tries to get Nancy to stop, she repeats that he needs to pay for what he did and causes him to fall out of a bedroom window and die. Sarah then tries to distance herself naturally. This is when it gets actually scary. (laughs) Friends are not really friends anymore. Um, It's all fun and games until you pretend to be somebody else, fuck their boyfriend, and then murder him. Exactly. (laughs) Sarah tries to distance herself from her friends and begins having nightmares. Back away slowly. So slowly. 
she tries to distance herself, begins having nightmares that feel like they've been caused by the rest of the coven. She tries to invoke a spell that will bind Nancy's power so that she can't hurt herself or others, but she is met with threats by the way of fire and later visions of snakes and other scary creatures and even an illusion that her parents were killed in a, pra- in a plane crash. Oh, yeah, that was fucked up. So fucked up. The girls then have a final standoff at Sarah's house where they attempt to kill her and make it look like she has killed herself, even yeah. going as far as to write a suicide note in her handwriting that claims that she killed Chris. Nancy slashes Sarah's wrists, and when Sarah runs to her room, she's able to cast a spell on Bonnie and Rochelle when they go looking for her that make it look like Bonnie has scars all over her face and Rochelle has lost her hair like Laura. They run off, and the final battle is between Sarah and Nancy. Sarah is able to bind her power and defeats Nancy, and in the end, Nancy is actually institutionalized, and Bonnie and Rochelle lose their powers. Bonnie and Rochelle go over to Sarah's house one last time as she and her family are moving back to San Francisco and packing up. And they taunt her for making a big deal about creating the visions that her parents had been killed, saying that it was all an illusion. Sarah, to make it clear that she doesn't fuck around, causes the sky to turn dark and a tree branch to fall on the girls, sweetly reminding them that they don't want to end up like Nancy. And in the final scene, we see Nancy's room in the psychiatric hospital, and she's screaming like a maniac, telling the nurse, He gave me powers! I can fly! I'm flying! I'm flying! I'm flying! And the end was a bummer. It was a real bummer. To put it lightly. Yeah, just a little Not to overstate things, but... If you get too powerful as a woman, you may end up institutional. Well, it's also like Super Mario Brothers. When you get greedy, you die. (laughs) So a little bit of what was going on behind the scenes. Reading a lot in Entertainment Weekly's oral history, Douglas Wick, the producer, wrote the script based on the curiosity he had around the phenomenon of girls being marginalized in a man's world who suddenly came into their sexuality and had this enormous power. His co-writer, Peter Filardi, remembers telling Doug that magic is, is, is historically a weapon of the underclass and that their characters had to be outsiders because real magic requires needs. So in this case, they were unpopular. They had various needs that they needed to obtain with this magic. They saw over 600 girls and they tested over 90 actresses, um, according to Pam Dixon, who is the casting director. This included Alicia Silverstone, so right after Clueless. Oh, yeah. Angelina Jolie. That would have been a bad fit post It would have been a terrible fit. And I don't like this. I will say, like, the producer and the writer and director talk about how this was supposed to be, you know, this has come up with um, Drop Dead Gorgeous, that this was supposed to be, like, the anti-Clueless, which I don't like because, as we've discussed before, Clueless is a smart movie. Um, Cher is a smart character. And and this reboot is dumb as fuck. It's so dumb. Guys, like, why? It's hard not to talk about it all the time because I hate it so much and I haven't even seen it. But I don't know why things needed to be the anti-clueless for so long. It's not like people would group the things together. But no. it does tie back to the Drop Dead Gorgeous notion of, like, studios not knowing how to market movies to women, yes. which seems to be an overarching theme even now. Yes. Like, when they're surprised that Crazy Rich Asians did really well among, among women, despite, you know, them not necessarily targeting us specifically. It's like, well, right. fucking duh. Yeah, no, Exactly. And I will say, Hallmark has it figured out. Yeah, and I will say from a marketing perspective, this was a big surprise that they didn't really know how to market this, but in the end, it ends up making a ton of money, and we'll go more into that later. But the people they looked at were Alicia Silverstone, Angelina Jolie, so I think this was post-Gia, that movie. That she, would make sense. Um, but pre-Girl Interrupted and Gone in 60 Seconds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Casting director in the interview said that she tested ScarJo, but... She would have been 12. Like I Age-wise, it, it wouldn't have worked. No, she was... I, she, I looked up, and this was right around she, the time she was doing The Horse Whisperer. So she must have been, like, 11 or 12 years old. Like, there's no way. 
one thing to note here, which the casting director pointed out, is that this was right before the big teen boom that would come out of Kevin Williamson's writing of Scream and later Dawson's Creek. And so there wasn't as large of a crop of well-known teens, early 20s actresses at that point. But hadn't Nev Campbell already been in Scream? No, no, no. So that comes out later that year. Um, oh, so I see. So they but uh, Scream comes out, I, I believe it's either, so this came out in May of 1996, and I believe Scream comes out either later that summer or around Halloween. And so it was before that. She was the most famous of the cast, though, because of Party of Five. She had already been on right. Party of Five. So but this is still the very beginning of her jump to movie star exactly. career. Exactly. From and, TV. And, and Faruja Balk was kind of just known as an indie actress. Like, she was filming a movie called Basquiat about Jean-Michel Basquiat. Rachel True had had a few credits, but nothing really big. And Robin Tunney had just finished Empire Records. And in fact, mm. when she was cast, she was bald still from playing Deb, so she had to wear wigs, and that's why her hair looks kind of weird throughout the movie. Like, it's fake hair that they um, would kind of glue with some wax on her, just on Empire Records. And I think that wasn't a very big hit at the time. It's only later it became, like, this cult classic. So this was her first big, like, big-budget studio starring role. And Robin, after she had done Empire Records, she gets cast. She really wanted, she auditioned for Bonnie, Nev Campbell's role. And she was offered Sarah instead, which she thought was kind of boring because it was just like a kind of a straw man role. Like it was just the not that exciting or straight. Yeah, even though she is the protagonist, ostensibly, since we see everything from her point of view, she is fair she has like a pretty like a to b yeah. arc it's she doesn't really do anything interesting she doesn't really have like that deep of a backstory no it's she only becomes more interesting with like her powers and then even then they're sort of mismanaged exactly. and and then like the, even the final big fight scene at it's the end it's kind of anticlimactic once it just becomes her and um and Faruja yeah it's basically all about nancy anyway because right. you already really like nancy because right. she's one you have over throughout the movie because she's just an interesting has more depth to her character absolutely even though maybe she she is she was really fucking scary i remember being terrified of her but also like in awe obviously well, also, yeah, as, as she gets more and more powerful she definitely goes skews more towards the robert smith pure goth look right her is, eyeliner gets darker as the movie progresses lighter. yeah <laughs> um, real robert smithy looking yes uh, and that was actually part of the the look. Like, when they were putting together what these girls would look like, what it would, you know, show to emphasize that they now had these powers, they really did think of The Cure as an inspiration on how to make the Catholic school uniforms look more goth, chic, and like, oh, yeah, these girls are definitely witches. Well, it wouldn't be a surprise to anybody to know that at the same time I was heavily into the craft, I was also really listening to The Cure and The Smiths. <laughs> And this comes up, they actually uh, prominently feature a cover of How Soon Is Now by the Smiths in this movie. Rachel True's character, Rochelle, was originally supposed to have an eating disorder, but when she got the part, they changed the role to be a storyline around her getting bullied for being the one person of color at her school. In this really great interview for Lenny Letter, she talked about, the actress talked about how her experience was great in some ways on the set, everyone was wonderful. But during the press tour, she was kind of still dealing with a lot of racism where she was not invited to the press junkets, but the rest of the cast would be. And she only ended up being invited to one of them after one of the producers interceded. So that was really sad to read about. Um, it's disappointing, but ultimately not, not that surprising. surprising. No, no, no. I am ultimately glad that they didn't go the eating disorder route right. because I also feel like as maybe shitty as the press tour was for her, it 
was a lot of people's first introduction, especially if you're like from like a liberal, white, affluent neighborhood, to see that, oh, you know, people can be dicks and you have to look out for other people and you can't let others bully for sure anybody else over things like that. For so sure. I thought that that was, that's interesting. But the, the eating disorder also feels really like typical. Yeah. I feel like in the 90s there were lots of like, I'm a dancer and I also can't, yeah, I mean, I'm bulimic. A couple years later we get all those dancer movies where eating disorders were a major plot line. But Rachel True actually got involved with esoteric studies and tarot cards about a year before <laughs> filming The Craft. So she was pretty well schooled in that. And Faruja Bulk would later get really into it. Um, and I'll talk more about that later. Uh, but she gets really, really into occult studies while filming The Craft. Obviously, the most famous person was Neve Campbell because she had been in Party of Five, and this is right before Scream was released, which also co-starred Dick Bag Ski Ulrich. Um, well, it's not his fault. I'm sure he's fault. very nice. No, no, no. I'm but sure he also I, doesn't he play like someone's dad or another dirtbag on, dad on, on Riverdale? Riverdale? Yeah, it's a, it's I mean a part that he was truly born to play. Right. I think so. So it's up to the late Luke Perry was Archie's dad, and then Jughead's dad is Ski Ulrich, who, and I think he's like the leader of a gang on the show. And then, All of that tracks. Yep. And then I think it's uh, Betty's mom is um, Machen. What's her last name? She was on Twin Peaks. And then I believe Veronica's mom is, is someone famous as well. So it's all like people of like Gen X, teen movie, teen Interesting. show. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this movie was received an R rating because of the witchcraft references, which the MPAA <laughs> linked to devil worship. They just, like, like, didn't know what to do with it. Which, of course, and, and, of course, the fact that the main character had attempted suicide, which at the time, like, they there was still that philosophy of if we don't talk about it, people won't do it. And it's like, fuck that. That's not true. That's been proven time and time again. So it received an R rating, which is amazing because it ended up being a box office success. And in fact, uh, the one thing about behind the scenes that I found was really interesting is that they really wanted to make sure that when they were doing all the occult references, Wiccan references, that it was as true to the study and practice as possible. So they enlisted a real life Wiccan named Pat Devon to act as an onset advisor for the film. And she actually wrote the incantations that were used and ensured that uh, all the subject matter was treated accurately and respectfully and that they weren't just like throwing bullshit in there, um, that it was actually true to what everything was in the Wiccan teachings. Well, I'm so glad the craft had a positive experience with a Wiccan expert because as you will soon find out with Practical Magic, that was not the case. So I'll quickly go into the release. Uh, it was released on May 3rd, 1996. Um, it was a surprise hit. It earned $55 million with a $15 million budget. Considering they didn't really know who to market to, this was incredible, especially that it's an R-rated film uh, where that stars teenagers. It received mixed reviews and currently holds a 55% approval rating on rot uh, Rotten Tomatoes. So since then, Rachel True, who played Rochelle, has become a full-time tarot card reader. Yeah, yeah. She currently does readings for clients over the phone and at the House of Intuition in L.A., Bruja Balk, while filming, became really interested in the Wiccan teachings and the occult, and later bought an occult bookstore in LA called Panpipes Magical Marketplace. And it Where was that? Fact, it has since closed, I believe. Oh. And in fact, the woman that they hired to be the consultant was an employee at the store, and that's how she got interested. And she bought the bookstore because it was about to become a Chinese restaurant. She bought it and later sold it in 2001, but she was able to kind of help fix it up and help it survive, and I don't know if it's still around, but yeah, that's pretty cool. Nev Campbell obviously would go on to be in Scream later that year and the rest of the Scream franchise and just become a really famous actress. Uh, Faruja Balk would go on to appear in The Waterboy, Almost Famous, a lot of various indie films, 
And obviously this film has become a huge cult classic since it's kind of a rite of passage for millennial girl sleepovers. In fact, Robin Tunney talked about going to a bachelorette party a few years ago where everyone had to bring their guilty pleasure movie to this party and Natalie Portman's was the craft, but she was too embarrassed to take it out of her bag because Robin Tunney was at the party. And then the cast and crew interviewed in oral history all believe it's directly what inspired Charmed, which started airing on the WB, I believe two years later, right down to the fact that Charmed's theme song was the same cover of the Smiths' How Soon Is Now was performed by Love Spit Love. And Andrew Fleming, the director, even said that he had written a pilot script for the craft. That's not surprising, especially if it was a hit. For the WB. Um, Oh, wow. So so it was going to be for Fox originally. The WB wanted to take it, and Fox would not let it go because Fox passed on it. And then later, in a few years later, Charm came out. Well, yeah, the WB just went and found a writer and was like, "Can you get, can you get this done for us? Basically. Can you write the show?" And Basically. that's how we have Charmed in two different iterations. Um, final thing I want to note is that unfortunately, a remake is being uh, made right now. Which I will say, we I'm, should do a follow-up remake episode because there's been a lot, especially just in this last year. For sure, and ones that I'm not happy about, as we've talked about many times, there are often great names tied to these things. Like Zoe Lister Jones is set to write and direct, and I really like her as an actress. I liked her um, movie Band Aid with Adam Polly. It was really cute. It was really cute, and I, I really, I do like her a lot. But I think that for all the scripts that are out there that are not getting produced, um, that are probably original stories about teenage witches, do we really need to make yet another remake of a movie? I but you couldn't so. like find an original story exactly. about four witches. Like I just don't understand. Is it because people like? The craft it's now that you feel the need to remake exactly it, it. you don't need to remake that. the exact same thing it, over again. God, it, I really hope they never reboot Friends. I, they, I think they. I mean, the cast I will throw my really, laptop into a river. They, they have all been main, like very adamant. I hope they continue it, to do that. Please, like, guys, let's I appreciate not. that decency. Just let it be. Just let it be. There was a Friends reboot for the 2010s. It was called Happy Endings, and it was a hundred million times better. <laughs> Adam Pally. Adam Pally. Casey Wilson. Um, and everybody else. Everyone in that cast is great. The other thing is that the producer who is um, tied to it is Jason Bloom, who owns Bloomhouse Productions. And that he, man loves a cheap movie. He loves a cheap movie, but he's really good about giving directors creative control. Like he's in charge. He's the guy behind the Paranormal Activity franchise, the Purge franchise, the latest Amityville movies. Get out. I don't really us, know. The yeah. Latest Halloween. Movie. Shouldn't have maybe led with the things that you led with. But, because I feel like creative control or no, I don't really think that really matters. Just, like, right. green light an original script for fuck's so, sake. But I will say, like, like you do out. with Jordan Peele. Yeah. Get Out and Us, obviously, being the, the big ones. But, I mean, I don't think this needs to be remade. I think it's a fantastic movie, albeit, you know, I'm sure there are one or two things here where I'm like, yeah, that doesn't need to be remade. But clearly, it's it's good enough that it, it passed that this can be remade test. But... I think there are just, again, too many original scripts out there that are, are left, you know, collecting dust that deserve to be made over this. And that is The Craft. I really am upset by this remake. I hope it doesn't happen. I'm so sorry to cur- curse Zoe Lister-Jones, but we are on the topic of witches. Yes. And if you're a person of a certain age, a.k.a. our age, you might have thought that becoming a witch would be a lot more easy than it possibly is thanks to movies like the craft and also practical magic 
for whatever fucking reason, Practical Magic is at a 21 on Rotten Tomatoes, which, like, I fucking call Kangaroo Court on that. Yeah. I don't really know. I mean, I'll get into the reasons why, although to me, it's, the the short answer is, oh, because chicks like it, fuck this fucking movie. Right. I mean, it just, I think if it had come out 10, 15 years later, that score would be doubled. But I also think that it holds up now in ways that oh, some of its some contemporaries of, cannot hold up. Which have a higher Rotten Tomatoes score, I agree. Released over 21 years ago, practically to the day right now, October 16th, 1998, Practical Magic, which is directed by Griffin Dune, who is best known for being an actor in things like American Werewolf in London, Quiz Show, and more recently, Dallas Buyers Club. Prior to Practical Magic, he had directed another screwball rom-com called Addicted to Love, which had Meg Ryan and Matthew Broderick. It had a similarly perplexing... It had a similarly perplexing tone to it because they were like scorn exes that come together to make their exes jealous who they have like they left their exes left them for each other then they get together to make their exes jealous and then they end up falling in love because it's a rom-com yeah the script is based on a novel by the same name by alice hoffman and was written or adapted by adam sweecord who wrote matilda jane austen book club a couple of episodes of when they see us Akiva Goldsman of Akiva Goldsman fame, a.k.a. Batman Forever, yeah. you know. And Adam Brooks, who wrote another timeless rom-com, French Kiss, Ooh. in addition to the second Bridget Jones' movie, and definitely maybe. So another person who has more of a uh, romantic comedy background than, say, your average screenwriter. Yeah. <laughs> Even though this movie takes place in Massachusetts, it was mostly shot in California, but the movie's most famous co-star, The Owens House, was actually built on the San Juan Islands off the coast of Washington. In wow. Pra- yeah, in Practical Magic. Uh, yeah, and also they, like, shot some scenes on Quidby Island. Interesting. So that's how they have a, that, they've retained that coastal feel. Why they didn't shoot it on the East Coast is kind of unclear to me. Probably too cold. Like, sometimes the, that time of year when they were In filming. the summer? Oh, they were filming in the summer. Okay, yeah. yeah. Most Halloween movies, I mean, most seasonal movies that happen, you know. Right. Like, Summer movies get shot in the winter, and then fall movies get shot during the summer. (laughs) And as I'll get into during Halloween Town, sometimes it's like the hottest day of the year. I remember when I was at Bear Essentials, we shot the winter campaign in the dead of summer in L.A., and they were like, this poor woman had to be in like a fucking full-blown wool turtleneck, having people throw dried potato flakes at her because that's what you use to fix snow. And I can only imagine that makeup just like... Oh, just sweating. In between takes, we just had to run in, just had to run in and like blot constantly. And you would never know it because she's a professional, but I know it because everybody told me how fucking hot it was during the shoot. So that's just sort of how seasonality promotion works, I guess. Yeah. But Practical Magic is a combination of mine and I'm sure a lot of other people's favorite genres, which is witches and romantic comedies. Yes. Or a witchy rom-com. Absolutely. So to get into a bit of the plot, and we were watching this movie prior to walking in and recording, so it's very fresh in my mind, but I will try and keep it as short as humanly possible, always. The movie centers around the Owen sisters, Sally and Jillian, played by Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman, which, like, I will continue to scream this cast as I continue to talk about the different characters. Because it's, I I really cannot believe it. I think everybody is at the top of their game. I don't think critics were in a position or frame of mind to recognize there's that scene where Sandra Bullock begs her aunts to bring back her dead husband to life. And the way that she has a complete breakdown, like, you, if you're not sobbing, you can go fuck yourself. You're a monster. You are a monster or a robot. <laughs> or a sociopath. 
Like Jesse Plemons' character in Breaking Bad. Yes, I watched El Camino, and I'm still thinking about it because he's so fucking creepy. Okay, so after Jillian and Sally's parents die, they are shipped off to live with their aunts, and who among us doesn't have uh, relatives in our family that we refer to as the aunts? For whatever reason, they are not married, they live together, they seem like they have it all fucking figured out, but for whatever reason, everybody's like, uh, they're spinsters, you're like, that's rude, but anyway... These aunts also happen to be witches. Jet and Francis, who both have, like, bomb-ass names, played by oh, Stalker yeah. Channing and Diane Wiest. Uh, just pitch-perfect casting, oh, great God. chemistry. So good. Not since I saw Judith Light and Bette Midler at the end of The Politician have I seen such perfect on-screen chemistry where you're like, where has this been my entire life? Just, I would watch a movie, a spinoff. I don't need a remake of Practical Magic. But no, like don't. With oh. Stalker Channing and Diane Weiss. Well, like I refuse to acknowledge its presence because I feel like much like, you know, trolls and goblins and stuff, like the more you talk about it, the more power you give them. That's so I'll true. only touch on it lightly. But fucking Lena Dunham has some HBO Max show, which if HBO Max wasn't getting Studio Ghibli movies onto their streaming service, I wouldn't even be considering it. But she's doing some fucking prequel to Practical Magic where it follows Chet and Francis and I don't like no. her and I don't like her writing no. and I don't want it and it's no. supposed to take place in like the 60s and 70s and like who asked for this for fuck's sake can someone just like write something for Stalker Channing Diane Weist Judith Light and Bette Midler like first wives club but please don't remake that either I don't know but yeah, do something no, I, I agree I think somebody needs to do something I, and like I know I'm sure there are a lot of our listeners who love Lena Dunham she is just not my thing and Margot Please her. let's not get into <laughs> let's it. Let's not get into that. No, I'm not. A, I'm a feminist, so I don't hate her. No, no. I just pretend like she's not there. But I do that to lots of people and yeah. lots of things. So it's not even like remotely personal because she's not important enough to hate, as Lisa Vanderpump once famously said. Anyway, this cast is so fucking good, and I do believe Sandra Bullock should have won an Oscar for this. I will die on this hill. Leave me here. For sure. We're introduced to the Owens family via Maria Owens, a young witch who is exiled with her unborn child to an island, Massachusetts, where when her lover does not rescue her from being hanged, hung, hanged, hanged, she casts a spell upon herself and inadvertently on her whole family lineage to never fall in love again. So the spell becomes a curse and it affects all of the generations of the Owens family. So any man who ever falls in love with an Owens woman will die. During this flashback, we also established not only that the sisters have a connection, but they're very different. Jillia is like the quote-unquote wild child, and Sally is the responsible one. Sally is also the one who is better at witchcraft, because Jillia is just one of those types of people, in addition to the wild childness, just doesn't care to like learn or retain anything. She's like a good time gal, as they would say. Yeah. After witnessing their aunts cast a spell for a woman who is obsessed with a man who just looks like some random fisherman. He looks like some guy from Wicked. Yeah, he he is not worth it. Over. We're going to stab a pigeon over this. This is not like any, the repercussions that could come out of this love spell. That picture, he is wearing a fucking vest, ma'am. Yes. What are we doing? Yes. All, all of this for a turkey burger? I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. what is going on here? Mm-hmm. So the, so Coast Jillian. Massachusetts. Uh, I mean, he does look peak very that, but also just feels like you're going through all of this trouble. You guys can't, like, work it out. I don't know. This is why. Therapy. It works. Anyway, Jillian and Sally witness this happening, and Sally gets so upset and terrified that she casts a quote-unquote true love spell to protect herself from ever falling in love, and she puts together all the qualities in a man that can't possibly exist, like having one blue eye and one brown and, like, 
being from Arizona or something like that. Be like star, star stars, stars. You can flip pancakes. And she puts. I I mean, I always love the scene. She like plucks all these petals and then yeah. throws it into the night. Years later, Baby Jillian and Sally bond forever when they do a blood oath right before Jillian runs away to Los Angeles and leaves Sally behind with the aunts to fall in love. Ooh. Cue Faith Hills this kiss because, bitch, this is our falling in love montage. Mm-hmm. It is just as heart-wrenching as the opening montage from Up. Yes, I know. Maybe they're not comparable, but you do know what's coming, and that's what makes you cry. You get a lot of story in about ten minutes. Another hill I am very willing to die on. It For is sure. on par with Up. When Michael dies, I cried. I also cried when Sally falls in love with Aiden Quinn again. But that's neither here nor there. In happier times, Sally marries Michael. They have two daughters. Kylie, that's a questionable name, played by Evan Rachel Wood, star casting. Also, young Sally is played by Camilla Bell. Yes. And her other daughter, Antonio. uh, Antonio. (laughs) Antonia, which I just wrote in parentheses, the other one, because she's not Evan Rachel Wood. (laughs) Once that stupid fucking beetle enters the picture, the ticking clock on Michael tragically passing begins. He eventually succumbs to a goddamn truck and... It is one of the most sad scenes in a movie. It's awful. You know, he quickly evades. I mean, I hate this movie's fake out. He's pushing his little dolly into the street and saying hi to all the townspeople. He's made about town. Everybody loves Michael. He's even hotter now, inexplicably, because he just grew a beard. And all of a sudden, I believe it's Margot Martindale, tells him to watch out. And he turns around, and there's, like, a bunch of cyclists coming through. And that's why you have to scream, like, on your left or whatever, or else you're going to fucking hit somebody. So he narrowly avoids that and like, ha, 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 isn't that so funny? And then, this is why you always look both ways when you cross the street. He starts to cross the street, bam, hit by a truck. And at that same moment, that beetle stops ticking. And it it sets off a series of really heart-wrenching, devastating events. Sally storms her aunt and begs them to bring him back. But instead of them bringing him back to life, she gets slapped in the face with the harsh realization that her aunts cast a spell so that she would be happy, not expecting Sally to actually fall in love and trigger the curse. Shattered, Sally and her daughters return to live with the aunts in the Owens family home, and Sally decides that her daughters will not perform magic. This is classic witches don't oh, perform yeah. magic in my is. house. Like You're going to be different. Bingo cards. Mm-hmm. This is witch bingo cards. Like, yep. I vow to never... I'm never going to fall in love. I'm a busy business lady. We all know. Over on the Jillian side, she she begins what is one of the first abusive on-screen relationships I've ever seen with Jimmy Angelo. I agree. I think that was one of my, the first ones I ever saw as well. Right? You had, like, complicated feelings about it. You're like, this makes me feel really uncomfortable and I'm scared. Yeah. But, like, she's supposed to be in love. Like, I don't understand. No, I know. I think it's this and, like, I remember seeing the old movie Carousel when I was a kid and it was like, he hit me, mama, and it felt like a kiss. And I'm like, oh. What are your parents letting you watch, Emily? Jesus. Oh, God. It was one, like, Turner Classic movie. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that's how I watch, like, anti-mame. <laughs> not great. Uh, luckily, Jillian can feel that Sally is in mourning and in grief, and she returns to Massachusetts on a surprise visit and helps Sally process what she's going through, but for one night only, because when Sally awakes, her sister is gone. But she is left with a new pep in her step and decides to open up the botanical shop that she had planned to open with her dead husband. She also goes on to be re-engaged in her daughter's life after a debilitating depression, and living in a small town is not easy when citizens openly taunt them for being witches. Like, literally, there's a scene where a bunch of shithead kids chant, witch, 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 at Evan Rachel Wood. And then she points at them and curses them with chicken pox. Then little Timmy's fucking mom asks to speak with the management, a.k.a. Sally, and complains. Jillian calls Sally to come to a rescue after Jimmy becomes further erratic and abusive, but when Sally arrives, he ends up kidnapping the both of them. Sally puts Belladonna into Jimmy's tequila and inadvertently kills him as he tries to strangle Jillian. Jillian decides in her all-knowing wisdom that they should use magic to resurrect Jimmy so that neither of them will be guilty of murder, which will totally hold up in a court of law. They return home, and they resurrect him using their aunt's spell book, but when Jimmy awakes, he tries to kill Jillian again because he's a fucking abusive asshole. Yeah. So Sally is forced to kill him yet again and save Jillian. You were always on my mind. They bury his creepy-ass body in the garden along with all of his fucking silver jewelry, and signs, strange signs begin occurring, indicating that something's wrong. Rose bushes. Sally's daughter, Kylie, recognizing that there's a strange man out in the garden, but none of them can see him. So, Jillian and Sally continue to deny, deny, deny until the best part in the whole movie starts, bar none, the margarita scene. Drink it all up, I put the lime in the coconut and drink it all up, I say, This movie, I think this scene in particular, definitely as a child, was like, I can't wait to be old enough to get drunk. I'm going to totally play this song and make all my friends hang around and do this. And I'm pretty sure I did do that at one point in college. But this also leads to one of the more creepy, unsettling scenes when the ants suddenly break into song. Someone left it on the porch. And the broomstick falls. And everybody gets into a big fight. Everybody goes to bed drunk and mad. And before Francis and Jet leave in the middle of the night, they give Kylie and Antonio a protection ward. And they tell Antonio to tell you Sally and Jillian. Antonio. Oh, my God. <laughs> Their name should be Antonio. Antonio. Oh, my Antonio. Oh, God. It's like the, the trend of giving girls masculine names, like, so that if they hand over a resume, like, you don't know if it's a guy or a girl. But like, Taylor so, Swift. Yeah. My old coworker named Blake, my who was a lady. Cameron, same thing. Oh, oh, yeah, Cameron. Yeah. Not named after Ferris Bueller? No, no. Too bad. Anyway, <laughs> they tell Antonia to tell her mom and her Aunt Jilly to clean up their own mess. That's when Gary, the sheriff, shows up to town from Tucson in search of Jimmy, who is revealed to be a fucking serial killer. 
which is no honestly idea. such a yeah, NBD. It's one of those things where like once he says it, you're like, oh yeah, I could see that, but that also like, oh my god, his treatment of women. <laughs> what the fuck? His obsessive behavior patterns. <laughs> Him just casually strangling somebody. <laughs> that takes two minutes, you guys. That's a long time. Anyway, Gary begins to suspect that Sally and Jillian rightfully killed Jimmy. So Jillian, Kylie, and Antonio create... (laughs) That poor girl. (laughs) I looked at it, said, I'm definitely saying Antonio this time, and I said Antonio. And I even fought myself there. Antonia. Create a potion to banish Gary. And this is also when we realize he can, like, flip a perfect pancake, and we're starting to put together the pieces. His favorite shape and all that. Maybe Gary is the man that she didn't wish to exist. Anyway, in the middle of them having, like, potion-laced maple syrup pancakes, and the girls suddenly realize their mistakes, so they take the syrup over to a cliff's edge and throw it over the side. Gary notices that a frog coughs up a piece of really ugly silver jewelry. (laughs) So he takes it, says it's going to be evidence, takes off. Later, after fighting with her sister, Sally insists that Gary needs to hear what they have. She has to speak her truth. She can't lie to this man. She's in love with him. She's going to take a chance. So she bum rushes the hotel room and tells, starts to tell him everything that he needs to record her testimony. But she notices that Gary has intercepted a letter that she had written to Jillian before rescuing her. And he has read it hundreds of times over. Or not hundreds, but like a lot. Which, honestly, the first time I watched this movie, I was like, uh, is that hot? I don't know. A little creepy. It's illegal to look at people's mail, so I don't really... Whatever. Anyway, that, like, Sally confesses, read this this letter a million times. Bad boy energy. Exactly. Federal crime. They're no longer able to deny each other's feelings, and they kiss, and Sally realizes that he is there because of the true love spell, and then runs away. When she gets home, Sally discovers that Jimmy has now possessed Jillian's body, and Gary, following... Sally home because he's in love with her and he like doesn't believe in curses yada yada sees it all Jimmy also attempts to kill Gary but he's saved by his silver shaped star so Gary leaves Jimmy as Jillian attempts to kill Sally again she knocks her out and then Francis and Jet return and they enact the power of the phone tree and Sally along with all the other moms that used to hate her show up with a bunch of brooms to exercise Jimmy from Jillian's body because that's how it works well, I mean, it totally tracked for me, and I always remember feeling that this part was like, yeah, fucking girl power, fucking that's suck true, a dick, that's true, yeah. Jimmy. Go back to hell where you belong with all your stupid silver jewelry. That's go so bury true. it in a desert with Johnny Depp. <laughs> I knew the Sauvage connection Sauvage. It's, it's all, you know, I cannot help myself. <sighs> anyway, so there is a point in the exorcism where it seems like it's really killing Jillian, and Sally stops it, and she breaks the circle. She comes in there. She cokes jimmy out and in the nick of time she reenacts the blood oath reminding jillian who she is and it breaks the curse the the love curse is broken not only for the owens family but also banishes jimmy's evil ass spirit and gary thankfully clears them also of any murdery charges so that's also good so they're free like they're free like literally and spiritually of murder in the end, Sally sends out a message via a leaf in the wind to Arizona. Gary consents her call. He returns to Massachusetts to be with Sally. And then they finally, finally, finally celebrate Halloween. And all of the Owens women demonstrate their powers by leaping, leaping off the side of the roof and landing safely. As she told Gary what they did uh, upon first meeting him. So it was a true story about the Owens sisters. And that is the general plot. To get into some 
I don't know, more big picture, high level stuff. Practical Magic actually didn't do much for Griffin Dune's career. In fact, he actually hasn't worked as a director for a major studio since its release. And as you can recall from the Rotten Tomatoes score, 21%, it had a poor critical reception. Although the audience score is high, and it's obviously generally beloved by women, girls, and gays, who are usually surprised to discover that a straight white guy actually directed it. But at the time, the reception was so poor that Dune, years later, wondered if the movie had been cursed by a witch who served as the consultant on the film and later sued the studio over a pay dispute. More on that in a tick. It made $46 million worldwide on a $75 million budget, but it also made way more in home entertainment and also... That's one of the first DVDs I ever owned. Totally makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I watched, I watched Practical Magic and Hocus Pocus in different vacation rentals in disparate parts of California. Yeah. Because it was always just like a staple. Like, it's a feel-good movie. Like I said, it blends. It's scary. I mean, I'll talk about it a little bit later, but it's scary. It's funny. It's heartwarming. It's romantic. It's all of these things all in one. There's, like, there's just genuine pathos in it, too. And it has some really great performances, obviously. Because of the fact that it appeals mostly to women and studios don't know how to speak to them it also like weaves in some darker themes about gender and power and also ultimately ends up being a crowd-pleasing comedy on just like kind of a more broad level yeah if you wanted to look deeper into it you can do kind of like more of an analysis of like the characters and how witches play a role in society and women being banished to the outskirts but i think that that's also the huge reason why it's still popular today they also reject traditional family and, like, the traditional family unit. A lot of the aunts are unmarried. Um, they just sort of, like, have a different way of, like, it's not just, like, a mom and a dad and two kids. It's kind of, like, it takes a village, and it definitely shows that, especially in, like, the phone tree scene. And But even though what makes it interesting about having, like, a non-traditional family unit makes them alienated throughout the movie, and it also makes the movie sort of hard to present itself as like a family comedy which is what I think it wanted to be but because it's not traditional family values in 1998 they were not super interested in it and indeed any man who enters the story is usually marked for death but from minute one that he enters the scene everybody knows especially when they establish the curse so clearly and firmly in the beginning they're all marked for death and if they evade it's because they've proven themselves to be a good or deserving man this movie is also about women supporting each other and, and helping each other despite their differences. Jillian and Sally, even though the community of women come together to defeat this evil man, and they can do that and still call them witches and mean it affectionately and also maybe not so affectionately. According to Sandra Bullock in the DVD commentary, while filming the margarita scene, the actresses actually got drunk on very bad tequila provided by Kidman. In fact, the women in the movie were so close and were so in character, all of their periods synced up. That is the most witch thing ever. I love it. They definitely made jokes slash like, like funny-ish threats to the director being like, oh, if it's like a full moon, you better fucking watch your back. Uh, Robin Stanifer, the production designer, she ended up pivoting after this movie into home design and decor and it started because ben stiller and christine taylor were were so taken by the design of the movie that they asked robin if they could remodel if she could remodel their home and that's how she started to redesign um interiors for very high profile celebs and just a high profile clientele in general and a lot of that came from the movie so taking like an la home and turning it into a like salem massachusetts but she has high client high high power clientele sort of all over now but it 
started with Ben Stiller and Christine Taylor, who saw the movie, looked her up. I mean, obviously, being a part of Hollywood, it's, like, right. easy to just, like, call someone up. Especially Griffin Dune was an actor. I'm sure they crossed paths at some point. The cast reiterated the real-life spooky vibes on the DVD commentary when they talked about how they felt supernatural elements happening in the house and it started to affect them. Both the cast and crew were reported to hear supernatural noises while they were filming and while they were filming the coven scene at the very end of the film. So here is the witch story per Griffin Dune for Vulture by Lila Shapiro. I am going to be reading this is Griffin Dune speaking. I had hired this witch consultant, thought she was a really intelligent person, and I invited her to come to Los Angeles and observe the rehearsals with Sandy and Nicole. I had my producer make her a reservation at a nice hotel and call her, and the witch goes, you're not going to buy me off with a hotel room. I want a percentage of this movie. I'm going to have my own Practical Magic cookbook. She was quite well well paid, and she goes, I want an additional $250,000. The producer told her that's just not possible, and she goes crazy, scares the shit out of the producer. She says, I'm going to put a curse on you. I'm putting a curse on this movie, and I'm putting a curse on Griffin. So the producer comes back to my rehearsal, white as a ghost, and she tells me that call did not go well. She's really angry, like really angry. I had no idea what had quite happened, so I go back to my office on the Warner Brothers lot, and I listen to my voicemail. Griffin now drops into a low growl. How dare you sick that shrew on me? You think you can buy me off? Well, let me tell you something. There's a land of curses! And then she slips into tongues, and it was terrified. And it was terrifying. I listened to as much as I possibly could, and then I hung up. Within minutes, Warner's had been served with papers. She was suing Warner Brothers. So I give the legal department my tape, and they can't listen to it all the way through either. They're so freaked out by it, they just pay the witch off. I don't know how much, but enough to make her go away. You know, I got a great thing out of this. It inspired one of Aiden Quinn's lines, curses only have powers when you believe in them. I decided I'm just, like, not going to believe in this. It was creepy. If I had watched the scene in a horror movie, I would be freaked out by it, but this is real life. Then he starts to go into how he believes that the, the film was cursed later on. Women and girls, in particular, were so moved by it, and it did so well at the box office, but despite that, it had this weird reputation for being a failure. So, I didn't give the curse any power, but at the same time, I did come away to think that somehow a little stink was put on the movie, and it took time for the stink to go away. He also goes on to say that, just to cover his tracks, I did a little bit of an exorcism. I hired someone to get that person off my radar. The ceremony that was about as silly as the idea that someone could curse you over the phone was mostly just chants and smokes and shit like that. I just did it to cover my bases. <laughs> I thought that story was wild. I was blown away when I read that. Wow. I can't believe <laughs> this movie was possibly cursed and people felt, I mean, I think that, and I've been told this by people who practice a little bit of Wicca is that when you do say these incantations out loud, whether you mean them or not, especially like when you use a Ouija board, like that shit's real. Like you're inviting a certain element, whether you intend to or not. So I do believe that. And I also feel like if you are open to like religion or you're, if you're open to like a higher power, whether that's even just like your fucking co-star app or you're, you're, you go to church every Sunday. If you open yourself up to the good, you also have to be able to, you inadvertently also open yourself up to the bad and I think that that was a little bit of a current subcurrent throughout the filming of Practical Magic in closing Practical Magic was a harbinger of the gentrification of on-screen witchcraft (laughs) 
Uh, that's part me and part like a, a vulture article. But I do see what this author is saying that, you know, shortly thereafter, there was WB's Charm. There was another season of Buffy immediately following this movie yeah. where Willow becomes a, practice, a practitioner of Wicca. And then that becomes like an, an underlying current, like how she uses her powers for good. How does that work? But as I said earlier, this movie holds up and is still a classic that you can watch every year, every week, whatever you want. Because it's a perfect blend of scary, romantic, funny, and heartwarming. Have I ever told you my Sandra Bullock connection? What is it? So Sandra Bullock is from Arlington County, Virginia, which is the neighboring county from where I grew up. And her mother was an opera singer, and she was a professor of music at my college, Mary Washington. And she unfortunately passed away about two years before I started going to school there. But had she not passed away, she would have been my private voice teacher my freshman year. Huh. Yeah. Helga Bullock. Huh. Yes. Her mother's German. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I do believe this movie grants so little agency to its male characters. Critics didn't know what to do with that. But like most movies that we talk about on this podcast, it found a sizable following in its afterlife, mostly on video as like a slumber party staple and also on streaming. This this movie has like a personal connection for me only because of family curses. I wouldn't say that my family thinks that we have a curse, but my mom lost her father tragically at a very young age. My grandmother fell into quite a depression that felt really the way that she had always described it, felt really visceral in watching Sandra Bullock's portrayal. So that's why I, whenever I get, whenever I get to the chance to watch this movie, whenever I watch any of the, like the beginning scenes, I do get chills and get really like overly emotional, yeah. and I, I have to maybe step away or take a breath and realize that's not me. <laughs> so, but I love Practical Magic. I'm so glad that I rented it so I can rewatch it a couple more times after we are done recording. <laughs> But on to lighter fare, because for every dark, major theatrical release that'll influence young teens, there's also Disney trying to capitalize off the backs of any Uh, sort of trend, no matter what trend that may be. Uh, But it also, I feel like they have gone on to make quite a bit of money off of like a witch trend from like Halloween Town to Twitches to Wizards of Waverly Place. They love a good like, I'm a good witch. For sure. For sure. Or even Sabrina because of ABC Family. And there was, like, okay, do you remember before Hilary Duff was on Lizzie McGuire, there was, like, a bunch of direct-to-video Casper sequels? So there's the Casper movie. And there's one called Casper Meets Wendy where she plays a witch. And this was, she was, like, 11 years old or something. But that movie came out around the same time and was, I think, on, like, Fox Family or ABC Family or whatever it was called at the time. Whatever's now freeform. Well, I think what's the most, one of the more interesting things of these Disney movies are they are the beginning of them trying to join the TV movie boom that they are kind of, like, most known for among millennials. I mean, I, I, there are tons of BuzzFeed lists that talk about, like, oh, the Disney TV movies that you remember the most. Speaking of firsts for Disney TV movies, I am going to talk about Halloween Town. Surprisingly, Halloween Town has an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was directed by Dwayne Dunham, which he spells it D-U-W-A-Y-N-E, which kind of drives me crazy. That's so confusing. Before he became a Disney director, because after this movie, all of his IMDb turns into Disney TV movies, he had directed episodes of Twin Peaks and Beyond Belief. Wow. Now he does Clone Wars, the animated Star Wars show. Oh. 
Huh. It was written by Paul Burnham, who had previously written for the OG TV 21 Jump Street <laughs> and the A-Team, also the OG show. Uh-huh. It was also written by Allie Marie Matheson, who is best known for writing a Rugrats video game, and John Cooksley, who actually wrote for the Rugrats show proper. Oh. Halloween Town is more than just a Halloween season favorite for old millennials. It's also one of the first ever Disney Channel original movies ever made. Yeah. At the time, Disney Channel was just starting to get into making their own movies, and Halloween Town was originally going to be a movie for NBC. Or AB- NBC? Or NB- no, I'm saying NBC. Wow. I know what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, this is not an Antonio situation. <laughs> By the time Halloween Town aired, though, it was the fourth original Disney TV movie, the first being Brink, I guess. <laughs> Whenever that, I was like, oh, I suppose. I, I really don't remember. I feel like Xenon is my first. It's my personal first. Yeah. But I guess chronologically, that doesn't matter. The plot is, the movie begins with the 13-year-old Marnie Piper. Her age is very integral to the plot, which we will find out in a couple sentences, I promise, played by Kimberly J. Brown and her mother, Gwen, played by Judith Haug, who was part of Mutant Ninja Turtles. And they're arguing over why her younger siblings, Dylan and Sophie, and her can't go out for Halloween ever. Side note, I always associated that with the really Christian kids who grew up on the street with me, like, in the neighborhood that I grew up in. There was always, like, the really Christian kids who, like, couldn't go. They were the homeschooled ones, and it was like, oh, we're going to celebrate Halloween at our church. Yeah, I mean, Halloween definitely was never, you never got the, the kids that didn't get to celebrate it never had, like, a cool answer. It was like, oh, we're Jehovah's Witness. You're like, oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Well, anyway, while Marnie is arguing with her mother, Gwen, about why she can't go out trick-or-treating like regular kids on Halloween, her grandmother, Aggie, played by Debbie fucking Reynolds, may she rest. May she rest. What a great cast. This, I mean, this whole cast is great. Like, And I also think that Kimberly J. Brown and uh, Debbie Reynolds have like a really great on-screen chemistry as like grandmother and granddaughter. I just really, sure. I remember what I loved most about this movie was seeing their relationship because I was I was also very close to my grandmother, mm-hmm. so I always loved that. Anyway, grandmother Aggie is here for her annual visit, and she only ever comes up on Halloween. Mm-hmm. Aggie and Gwen are both secretly powerful witches. <laughs> Aggie encourages Gwen to just fucking lighten up and let the kids get involved in Halloween, but she says no. So, before heading home, Grandma Aggie decides to read the kids a bedtime story called Halloween Town about a mystical place where witches, vampires, and monsters all live together in harmony. Sophie points out that on the cover, a drawing of a witch looks a lot like Marnie. Aggie does nothing to deny this and obviously doesn't stop Marnie from imagining herself as a witch. After putting the kids to bed, Gwen and Aggie get into a classic mother-daughter fight about how to raise her half-mortal, half-witch child. Gwen believes that they should live like mortals. Aggie thinks that she needs to get Marnie into witch training because at, at the age of 13 is when you begin to train to be a witch, and it's a sort of like use-it-or-lose-it policy. So if she doesn't start training, she's going to lose her powers. After she fails to convince Gwen to let Marnie train to become a witch, Aggie asks Gwen for her help because she believes that the citizens of Halloween Town are in trouble because they've been disappearing Gwen doesn't take it seriously and shoes her mother along, but Aggie is steadfast in believing that foul play is involved. When Aggie leaves, she doesn't notice that Marnie and her siblings have followed her all the way to Halloween Town, and they begin to look for their grandmother. They are approached by Calabar, played by Robin Thomas, not to be confused with Rob Thomas, and he's the mayor of Halloween Town. He hails them a cab, driven by Benny, who's the voice of Reno Romano. We'll talk about that in a second. 
and he's a skeleton with a bad sense of humor. He just makes bad dad jokes. And the kids go off to find their grandmother's mansion. Against her better judgment, Aggie lets them stay. And she starts Marnie's witch training, which is exactly what Marnie wanted. Before she can start training her, she has to take care of something quote-unquote bad first. So she shows her grandchildren a cauldron. In it, there is a vision of a hooded figure who is laughing maniacally. And Aggie tells them she must return Merlin's talisman with a spell and a potion to defeat whatever this evil creature is. Back home, Gwen finally fucking notices that her kids are missing, and she immediately blames her mother and goes to Halloween Town to retrieve them, much to Marnie's chagrin. Gwen tells the kids that they need to say goodbye to Grandma Aggie, but cannot find another bus back to the mortal world, and decides to take it up with the mayor. Hey, mayor! Mm -hmm. She is shocked to find out that the mayor is Calabar, her ex-boyfriend, and in the midst of coming to terms with all of that, her mother wanders away. Aggie goes to meet the hooded demon in a theater, this is where she discovers that all of the missing Halloween Town citizens have been frozen in time. Aggie declines politely to give the talisman to the demon, so he freezes Gwen and Aggie, leaving the kids to figure it out. So this is when they go off to find the necessary ingredients to create this potion, and it's the hair of a werewolf, the sweat of a ghost, and a vampire's fang. This will activate the talisman, but they must place the talisman inside of a large jack-o'-lantern that's in the center of town. When they arrive to go do this, the demon suddenly appears, obviously, because he's a fucking demon. Duh. And he reveals himself to be Calabar. He starts talking to the townspeople and tries to persuade him to essentially join his cult to slip into the moral world and take over. Marnie gets past Calabar long enough to climb up into the jack-o'-lantern and places the talisman inside. But Calabar casts a spell, freezes her, but it's not in enough time because as she passes out, she drops... Mar or Marnie drops the talisman inside the jack-o'-lantern, which causes it to illuminate, and the sun freezes her and everybody trapped inside of the theater and severely weakens Calabar. Gwen, Aggie, and the children confront Calabar, and they use their combined forces to defeat him, and the film ends with the family getting on a bus and blasting off to the mortal world. It's all very, like, here's the problem, it'll get solved in less than 90 minutes, and everybody loves everybody, and it's great. Yeah. I, I did love, like, the family dynamic, especially between Gwen, the mom, Aggie, the gra Debbie Reynolds, and Marnie. I thought it was, like, interesting to follow three generations of witches, even though it was, like, sort of similar to Practical Magic in the sense that, like, she will never practice witchcraft, but you can't go against fucking biology baby <laughs> can we discuss how the little sister sophie is a better witch than marnie oh yeah i mean doesn't she help out and clean she, up most of the mess yeah she cleans up the mess she remembers all the chants like becky ma becky v like i mean the brother is fucking useless he's so useless just so, sort of s sort of similar to the brother in hocus pocus you're like all right dude great all because you wanted great. to see some boobies great yeah, thank congratulations, you congratulations you virgin you you black you fucking black virgin lighting virgin <laughs> yeah dylan's pretty useless i think maybe he has more airtime in the sequels i do not remember but uh, i only watched the second sequel and i will get into the all of the rest of it but yeah, yeah, yeah. Halloween Town, similar to Twilight, <laughs> is a real town in Oregon, in St. Helens. Benny, the skeleton cabbie, the first character that we meet in Halloween Town, is actually a robot. But more interestingly, because I did not organize my fun facts in the way that I intended to, the budget for this movie was originally $30 million, got slashed to $4 million, wow. hence the, like, Lots of in-camera effects, not a whole lot of CGI. Yeah. You could tell that they had to use a lot of creative, 
corner cutting in order to pull this off. But I think it really lends to the charm of the movie and actually ends up helping it in the end. It's a good enough Disney Channel original movie that it can get past that. Yeah. Case in point for the in-camera effects, the fire coming out of the hairdryer was real fire coming out of a hairdryer. That's not at all dangerous. Don't you think that would be protected under, like, that Jackie Coogan law? Like, (laughs) is she allowed to to do that? Little Sophie... No, it's it's Marnie. It's little Marnie. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, even yeah, yeah, you're right. So they had to adjust the script to match the budget, and it took several weeks. It took several weeks to get it there. But Halloween Town was filmed in 24 days, which is crazy. Aside from the special effects, it was also came down to like the number of takes they could afford to do, and also the amount of people they could have on set. So everything was really meticulously planned, and so they had to reuse a lot of extras in different costumes, especially when it came to Halloween Town. So they would double up and change, sometimes within the same scene, just to make it look more full. Robin Thomas, who played Calabar, lost his voice during his big monologue speech uh, at City Hall. I mean, if you were to talk like this all the time. In addition to that, though, he had no body mic or, like, close-up mic at all. So he had to project to the back of the room and... Obviously, you're doing multiple takes, and so... shouting at one point outside. Completely lost his voice. Yeah. Again, $4 million budget. The ending we all know and love is not the original movie's ending. In the Halloween Town, we know Marnie places the talisman inside the giant pumpkin, and she saves everybody. In the alternate ending, Marnie has to walk the talisman to the middle of a magical forest, and as she walks through the forest, she grows older and older with each step. I guess that was maybe, like, too bleak for Disney. So even though that ending was scrapped, they got so far as to make molds of Marnie's head in order to achieve this effect. And since the ending wasn't used, Kimberly G. Brown got to keep one of her heads for herself. (laughs) Halloween Town is now a series of four movies, and most of the original cast has appeared throughout all four, except Kimberly J. Brown got Beckied in the fourth Halloween Town movie and was inexplicably replaced by Sarah Paxton. There are different reasons as to why Disney says it was a scheduling conflict. Kimberly J. Brown says she was never asked. And like all... She doesn't even look like her. That's the weird thing. Like, it's... Becky, at least, like, Sarah Chalk looks enough like... Yeah, but you went from, like, a shorter brunette to, like, a tall, like, willowy blonde. I, I completely agree. It makes no sense, and I don't even know why they wouldn't just, like, reboot it and have it be, like, a different family, right, perhaps. No, totally. But to just swap her out, especially in the fourth movie, where it's, like, it's clear this is who Marnie is. I don't get it, but whatever. So, like all seasonal movies, Halloween Town was shot in the dead of summer, and it was July of 1998 specifically, and it was apparently one of the hottest summer in St. Helena's ever. Or, I'm sorry, St. Helen's. Joe Zimmerman, who played Dylan, said that the townspeople had it worse because they were passing out the fish guy mask, the crazy alien mask. These were all, like, really hot, unbreathable costumes. This is, like, Wizard of Oz shit. Like, I've been listening to some podcasts about the Wizard of Oz and those conditions, and it was just chaos. Well, that paint killed people. It, well, it, it, it's, it didn't kill them, but it severe, like, made them severely ill to the point of hospitalization. Not great, Bob. No. So a couple cute facts, though, before we say goodnight to Halloween Town. The town of St. Helens, Oregon, celebrates every year the spirit of Halloween Town. It's been a bash they've been throwing for years, and it's to honor the movies. So cute. And the Halloween Town books were actually specially made for the movie and are, in fact, finished books. 
and a couple of the cast members got to keep some copies from the shoot and now I just really want to read a couple I wish they would add them to scholastic book fairs I would have got one I was just ta- speaking of since scholastic. it ties I was trying to lob it over beautifully into the twitch's court thank you Margaret you're welcome Speaking of Scholastic, um, we are going to also talk about Twitches, but very quickly. Disney Channel original movie that premiered October 14th, 2005, and it's based on the Scholastic book series that was written by H.P. Gilmore and Randy Ricefield. It is directed by Scott Stuart Gillard on a budget of, what the fuck, $20 million. That's so crazy, but I think by the time, this is like 2005, I think by that time. Oh, they've got money. They've got tons of money. This is, and but this is right before High School Musical, so like, they've reached the, like, a lot of money, but not quite High School Musical money yet, so I'm, I was surprised. Gillard is best known for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, <laughs> Rocket Man, which stars Harlan Williams, who according to our SoundCloud stats, has listened to our podcast <laughs> Or the account running his podcast has listened to us. So if you're listening, either way, hey, Um, and also directed episodes of Charmed and One Tree Hill. It stars Tia and Tamara Mari, a.k.a. the Mari sisters of Sister Sister fame. Sister Sister. Thank you. I was thinking it, but I didn't want to like step on anything. (laughs) Thank you. So the plot, I'm just going to try my best here. All right. In the dimension that's known as Coventry, there is a royal witch queen by the name of Miranda who gives birth to two twin girls on Halloween night. Their names are Apollo and Artemis, and they are named after the Olympian twins, Apollo, the god of the moon, and Artemis, the goddess of the moon. Each is given a necklace with the symbols. One, obviously, is the sun for Apollo and uh, a moon for Artemis. Their father is Aaron Dubert. He is a powerful warlock, and he transfers the entirety of his magical powers to protect them from an evil entity known as the Darkness, and while he does this, he is killed in the process. Karsh and Ileana Warburton, who are a magical couple and are family friends, assume the task of protecting those twins and have them uh, flee to a non-magical dimension known as Earth in order to give them up for adoption. So Rude. there's a Harry Potter-esque connection there. Sure. Albeit probably not as well written. Yeah. Um, a little clunky. A little clunky. Apollo is then adopted by a wealthy couple and they name her Cameron Elizabeth Barnes. Artemis is adopted by a single mom and she is named Alexandra Nicole Fielding and her nickname is Alex. Alex grows up to be a night owl. She stays up until the moon sets. She's writing about the chronicles of magical twin sisters, unbeknownst to her, her past. Meanwhile, she shares a single bedroom with her close friend, Lucinda, and after her mother passes away a few months prior to her 21st birthday. Meanwhile, Cameron is a passionate artist and a morning bird. She stays up. She wakes up at sunrise to sketch realistic pictures, and she's sketching pictures of the world that she was born in, Coventry, not realizing that that's what she's sketching. She's spoiled, uh, she's popular, she's outgoing, um, and meanwhile Artemis, or aka Alex, is very reclusive, very quiet, very introverted. But they share similar traits in some ways of kindness and intelligence. On their 21st birthday, Cameron decides to go shopping at the mall, and Alex, meanwhile, is looking for a job. They happen to be there at the same time because Karsh and Ileana, the family friends, have used their magic to make ensure that they would end up there at the same time and that they would bump into each other. So Alex 
is entering the store when that Cameron happens to be trying on clothes in. They encounter each other for the first time, and... It's a real parent trap moment. It's a v- moment. real parent trap moment. Alex runs off, and Cameron runs after her, and then grabs her hand, and as that happens, the magic is released. They discover that they are sisters. They attempt to understand each other, and they end up in Coventry, and Karsh and Ileana reveal themselves and introduce themselves to them and explain what their life is like, what happened to them, how they ended up in, on Earth, and unfortunately that their father has passed away and that they need their help to get rid of the darkness um, since they're the only ones capable of doing it and restoring Coventry. Alex has the gift of knowledge, so she refuses to help fil- fulfill this prophecy because all of her stories that she's been writing always end with death. And then Cameron is able to convince her to stay, saying, you know, hey, we have this unstoppable bond. We can do this together. And the two work on their magic powers, and they have a bonding montage match. Um, They dub themselves Twitches, a portmanteau of the word twin and witches. In the meantime, Miranda is sensing that her daughters are alive and informs their uncle, Thantos, (laughs) whom she married after Aaron's death. So uh, she she pulled a Hamlet Uh and... (laughs) Just moving right along. So there's a lot of, there's like a Harry Potter element, there's a Hamlet element, there's a sister-sister. There's Greek gods. I mean, it's very theatrical. It's, it's like, let's just make this the the pie, a pumpkin pie of different. What theater major like. wrote this? Someone who had some interesting experience. Okay. Um, <laughs> the darkness arrives at Alex's apartment, but the sisters manage to transport back to Coventry, and this experience makes Cameron feel really awful and overwhelms her and despite her sister's pleas Cameron decides that she does not want to venture further into their destiny so she leaves in order to go participate in a costume birthday party that she's having for her birthday since Halloween's coming up on earth and Alex is (laughs) determined to help Coventry without her sister and so she reunites with her biological mom Miranda and she meets Santos her uncle um, slash stepdad who informs her that if Cameron is alone, she's powerless against the darkness. So at the party, uh, yeah, wow, that's some real like drive me crazy shit. My yes. my uncle slash stepdad. Yes, all over the place. So Cameron's party, Cameron is able to realize that Thantos is responsible for the darkness because she has a gift of sight, obviously. And she goes back to Coventry after Karsh and Ileana sacrifice themselves to help her. And after she reveals her uncle's actual identity to Miranda and Alex, Thantos arrives and admits to killing his brother, uh, their dad, in an attempt to acquire wealth and power. The twins are able to combine their magic as light and love to vanquish him and to restore Coventry. And then, in turn, Karsh and Ileana are brought back to life. They then end the movie celebrating their birthday on Earth, along with Miranda, their biological mother, and then Cameron's adoptive parents. And that is Twitches. I really wish I had more behind the scenes. Um, unfortunately, Twitches was a big movie, but I don't think it, it had the lasting powers of, of Halloween Town for sure. And the big thing behind the scenes that I found out that in terms of casting, Tia was originally going to play Cameron and Tamara was going to play Alex. Uh, but the two wanted their roles to be switched, so they did just that. And Such a weird flex. Like, it, none of us truly would have noticed the difference would have noticed like anyway no offense no (laughs) offense but it's kind of like Olsen twins I feel like 
as much as like in real life they are different, I I would have. Not in terms noticed. of your acting roles, I'm like, I couldn't no. get someone pick something. Someone pick something, and that's that. Like when I found out on Winning London, they happened to switch the normal personalities they go to. I was like, wow, that's stretch acting. Right, I didn't notice, but thanks for sharing. Thanks for sharing. Um, so when the movie was originally first on Disney Channel, it aired in October of 2005. It was viewed by seven million viewers. And then the four subsequent airings during that first weekend drew a total of 21.5 million viewers, and that was the week's most popular cable program. And Rotten Tomatoes doesn't really have a score for it because there haven't been like formal critic reviews, but the audience reviews are mostly positive with a score of 65%. A sequel, Twitches 2, came out two years later, and that's pretty much it. I don't really have anything else for Twitches. I think this is going to be a pretty long episode, but a good one. And that's all I have to say. Well, we hope you cast a spell to stay awake till the end because <laughs> we're finally here. We are finally here. Thanks for listening to our spooky episode about witches. <laughs> uh, that's obviously not a witch voice, but if you liked what you heard and you want to get updates about us, you can find us on Facebook at Old Millennials Pod. You can also find us on Instagram at the old millennials pod you can also rate and review and subscribe to us on itunes or spotify or wherever you are listening to this podcast and when you review or share something it helps other people find this show you can follow us individually on twitter if you would like i am at marge shiro and i'm at emily a vision and until next time we will cast a spell to bring you back goodbye bye Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.